This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Birth control. Ho Chi Minh. Richard Nixon back again. Moonshot. Woodstock. Watergate. Punk rock. Begin. Reagan. Palestine. Big topic. Hello again, and welcome to episode 106 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. Tom, I'm kind of wondering, how the heck did we get to where we are today? Because Billy thinks it might have something to do with Palestine. Casey, I find myself slightly intimidated today because that is a huge topic people have spent lifetimes talking, writing and discussing this one. And not figuring it out. And specifically today, we'll be talking about the pivotal event in the struggle over land and in the relationship of Arab citizens to the state of Israel. Yeah, Katie, I'm glad to say that our guest today is the historian and author Rashid Khalidi. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. He is the co-editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. He has written numerous books, including most recently, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Rashid, welcome. If you could give us, and I know this is very difficult because it's a vast subject, can you give us a little bit of historical context, please, that we need to approach the specific nature of today's subject? There are lots of misconceptions about Palestine, one of them being that uh, the struggle that's going on there goes back to time immemorial. That's actually very, very incorrect. It's a very recent struggle developed out of uh, modern colonialism and modern nationalism. And before you had those things, there was no, there were no issues such as one sees today in Palestine. There were no Arab Jewish or Muslim Jewish conflicts. It was not a, a scene of violence between communities. This is a 20th, 21st century conflict, which grows out of British imperialism, Zionism, Arab nationalism, and settler colonialism, uh, taking over a country to replace a population with another population. So before all of this colonialism and the hullabaloo over who gets what in that area, are you indicating that these are groups of different peoples and tribes that coexisted in this area peaceably for years? Well, certainly between Arabs and Jews in Palestine, there was no overt conflict for centuries and centuries and centuries. You can go right back to the Muslim conquest, you can go before that. Certainly there was conflict in the region, great powers and uh, local forces, the Crusades, for example. But that was not any kind of precursor of what we see today. It had nothing to do with the struggle between uh, Zionism, the state of Israel, and the Palestinians. These are modern, these are modern entities. They didn't exist. The great-grandparents of the current folks who are fighting one another did not think in those terms. Nobody thought of themselves as an Israeli in 1800 or 17 or 1600. Nobody thought of themselves as a Palestinian, nor was there conflict between the precursors of these groups. Whatever conflict there was, was on completely different level between completely different actors. Talk us through the, the period post Second World War when the modern day history of Palestine and Israel truly begins. Well, it actually begins a little before that. It begins, um, for many people at least, certainly for me, with the Balfour Declaration. It begins with the first Zionist Congress. It begins with the development of the idea of Palestine. You see newspapers and so on before World War I talking about Palestine. So it, it does begin before World War II. It takes the shape it has today 
uh, with the Nakba, the expulsion of 750,000 Palestinians during and after the 1948 war, with the establishment of the State of Israel. But I would take it back, certainly, to the beginnings of Zionism and to Britain's support for Zionism starting in 1917, and then the Arab reaction to that. Those are, the, those are what I would call the precursors of the developments that we see in 1948. Was there a sense, Rashid, that when the British were tacitly allowing the area in Palestine to be colonized by Israel, or what was to become the state of Israel, was there a sense that they were sort of colonizing by proxy or they were seeking to eradicate uh, Arabs from the area? Well, first of all, it wasn't tacit. I mean, the Balfour Declaration and the mandate for Palestine were very explicit. Britain was to create a Jewish national home in a majority Arab country. So there's nothing tacit about it. I think you're onto something, though, when you suggest the idea of a proxy. Britain wanted to control Palestine for strategic reasons. And it wanted to do that long before World War I. It was close to Egypt, Suez Canal, shortest land route between the Gulf and the Mediterranean, various strategic reasons. And it chose to use Zionism as a proxy for that. So it was a sort of transactional relationship between Britain and the, and the Zionist movement, whereby Britain got what it wanted, which was strategic control of Palestine, and the Zionist movement got what it wanted, which was a great power patron that would hold down, suppress the native population while it built up its parastate structure and eventually became able to take over the, the country. Is there a sense, when we look at the specific incident we're talking about here, Rashid, is there a sense of inevitability by the time we get to the mid-1970s of all that is to come, or could a different path have been taken? I mean, there are many places that different paths could have been taken, but some things make you know outcomes more or less inevitable. The, the British decision to take Palestine is one of them. The rise to power of Hitler and the horrific events leading to the Holocaust are another. The fact that the Zionist movement pivoted and turned to the post-World War II superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, for support is yet another. Once those things happened, certain outcomes were likely to follow, and, and they did follow. And by the time you get to 1970, it's hard to see how things could have been much different. I think they could have been. I think there are a few turning points but one of the things that's, that's important to understand is that in Zionism, you have a relatively inflexible desire to turn a majority Arab country into a majority Jewish country. As long as that is the motivation, the idea is not to come and share. The idea is not to come and be a minority. I mean, the, <laughs> Zionism doesn't grow up because, oh, we're terribly happy as minorities in, in, in Tsarist Russia. We want to go and be a minority elsewhere. No, the idea is, a, as, as Herzl said, a Jewish state. Well, it was a majority Arab country. Right up until 1948, it was a majority Arab country. 65% of the population of Palestine in 1948 were Arabs. You create a majority Arab country by ethnic cleansing, displacement of existing population, or drowning them with immigrants. So some things, I would say, are inevitable. Were there turning points? Yes. It could have developed in the late for example, 80s and early 90s after the first intifada that Israel decided it wasn't going to keep the entirety of Palestine. As it happened, that didn't eventuate. The man who was negotiating for the Israelis, Prime Minister Rabin, was assassinated by a greater land of Israel fanatic. In fact, somebody who's very close to the current government. Uh, the, the current government is full, the Israeli government is full of people um, who were very much involved in the movement against Rabin, preventing him from making concessions 
to the Palestinians. Why were they so bullheaded, the people who first had this idea of creating the land and, and fashioning this safe haven for Jewish people in the middle of these Arab lands? Why didn't they see it to their benefit that maybe they should be a little more accommodating to the people who already live there? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, the status of Jews in Europe in the late 19th and early 20th century which especially in Eastern Europe was extraordinarily unenviable. From the 1880s, you have a series of pogroms in the Russian Empire, and they, they, they relaunch in the early 20th century. And this drives waves of people uh, fleeing. Secondly, you have a, a, a sense of identity that's developing in Europe around race. So you had the idea that the Jews are not just a religious group, they are a people, and that they must have what other peoples have, which is self-determination. And the place that's chosen for this is a place with the link, obviously, to Judaism, which is the land of Israel, which is Palestine. So that's how you get this intense desire to have a Jewish state in an Arab land. The, the, the other thing to add to the mix is this is an era of European colonialism, when Europeans thought nothing, or at least the end of the era of European colonialism, when Europeans thought nothing of displacing native peoples whom they regarded as inferior. And you can read what British statesmen and you can read what Zionist leaders thought of the Palestinians. They basically thought they could be pushed aside. And that's what, that's what, was, what was thought earlier in North America or Ireland or, or Kenya or Algeria. One could go on and on by European colonialists of the indigenous population. So you have that mix, and that's where you get that thrust of the Zionist movement into Palestine. So let's get into the 1976 Land Day protests and the ongoing fallout from that, which were, of course, triggered by the Israeli government's expropriation of land that did not belong to them. Can you talk us through everything that led up to this? One of the things that uh, any colonial movement has to do, any settler colonial movement has to do, is not just adjust the demography by bringing in you know, the, the new people and reducing the number of, of the indigenous population. The other thing is to take control of resources, especially land, water, land, and so forth. And up to 1948, what the Zionist movement had done is to purchase what amounted to six or seven percent of the land of Palestine. The rest didn't belong to them. And so after 1948, there were huge confiscations of land owned by Palestinians, either Palestinians who remained inside Israel or Palestinians who'd been forced out. By 1976, this process of expropriation, what I would call legalized lawlessness, you know, they, they, they pass a law saying you're an absentee, you can't control your land. Well, I'm right here, I'm right next door. That doesn't matter, it's not your property anymore. It belongs to the Jewish National Fund or the Israel Lands Authority or some uh, body of the Israeli government. This process by 1976 provoked a backlash. And that's where you get the, the Day of the Land demonstrations in which a number of the protesters were, were killed. Could you describe to us, Rashid, what life would have been like for a, a, an ordinary Palestinian at that point in the area that, that we're talking about before the land grabs begin? Uh, the overwhelming majority of the Palestinian population was rural, um, lived on land, sometimes belonging to them, sometimes belonging to large landowners. Education was you know, expanding, electricity was being extended to rural areas and so on, but you still had a high degree of illiteracy, you still had patriarchal relations, you still had a lot of backwardness and disease. But this was a society that, like other Middle Eastern societies, was changing and evolving before the arrival 
uh, of the Zionist movement, which presumably would have followed a course like other countries, Lebanon or Egypt uh, in the region, uh, but for uh, the development of Zionism and then the establishment of the state of Israel. How were they sort of coping psychologically, do you think? Uh, many people sensed a, a looming danger because it wasn't just Zionism. You had the British full-throatedly in support of the Zionist project, certainly for the first couple of decades of the, of the British mandate over Palestine. And then you had the League of Nations, which had given Britain sanction to go ahead and establish this Jewish national home. After 1948, you had Palestinians inside Israel who, for the first couple of decades after 1948 until 1966, lived under military rule. To get a job to, to move from your home, you had to have approval of the secret police, of the Shabak, the general security services, to be promoted. You had to show your loyalty to the state of Israel, which had dispossessed your people and taken half your village's land or whatever. Each different group of Palestinians saw this in a, in a different way after, after 1948. The ones who had been expelled and lived as refugees obviously uh, saw it from a distance in, in, a, in a different way to the ones who remained in Palestine, whether in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip or inside Israel, whether as refugees or whether as people who had not yet been displaced. So these are people who are disenfranchised in their own land, and they rose up and began to protest when this land grab was made public in 1976. And what were the repercussions for these protesting Palestinians? Well, they actually weren't technically disenfranchised in the sense that they had the right to vote. Political movements that were nationalist or that were seen as in any way inimical to Israel were cracked down on and people were arrested. But they could vote and they had representatives in the Israeli Knesset. But they had no control over laws like the ones whereby their lands were being taken away from them, expropriated. And there was just an explosion of rage because much land belonging to villages of Palestinians who remained in Israel in 1948 had already been taken in the years after 1948. And so this was yet another land grab. And I think people were coming to political consciousness and were less afraid than they had been for the more than a decade during which they were under military rule. I mean, <laughs> there were curfews. You couldn't move without a permit right up until 1966. By 1976, I think there'd been a, an evolution politically among Palestinians inside Israel, and they were less afraid. So as an American growing up in the, the 70s and 80s, I heard a lot about the two-state solution. So that sounded like everybody could just get along and everybody could have their own areas. Does that seem a little pie in the sky to you now? Well, it was, an, it was a solution that had been brought up before. In 1937, the British put out a plan for partition of Palestine. Uh, the United Nations in 1947 UN General Assembly voted for the partition of Palestine. And in fact, that was the basis on which Israel was later created, a, a year later. So it wasn't a new idea, but it was an idea that at the outset was fiercely combated by Israel in particular. And the, the Palestinians themselves weren't particularly excited by it. As far as they were concerned, the entirety of Palestine was an Arab country. It belonged to the Palestinians. They were the indigenous original population. But by the 70s, the PLO and Palestinian politicians and intellectuals were coming around to the idea. Uh, Israel wasn't enthusiastic. It wasn't until Rabin, in fact, that an Israeli leader formally admitted that there was such a thing as a Palestinian people, accepted to negotiate with the PLO. Israel has never accepted the, the right of national self-determination of the Palestinians, has never accepted that the Palestinians have a right to a Palestinian state, but that was the supposed basis 
on which the negotiations that started in 1991 uh, took place. When we see these protests in early 1976, Rashid, how does the Israeli state react? Well, it cracks down in a way that we see in many states with a kind of brutality, and in fact with gunfire in the case of the Land Day protests of 1976, that you wouldn't see with the majority population. Israel treats Palestinians entirely differently than it treats its own Jewish citizens. Uh, even though we're talking about, in the case of the Land Day, citizens of the state of Israel, but who happen to be Palestinian Arabs. This should not seem particularly strange to us. Uh, we have that same situation here in the United States in the way in which minority populations are treated by the police when they, when they protest. And so it, it caused even further outrage when protests against land expropriation were treated so brutally and so many people were killed. When these land expropriations were put into effect, was that in the form of illegal settlements? No, it was in the form of appropriation of land along the lines that had already taken place. In other words, the expansion of existing Israeli uh, communities or settlements, the declaration of some areas as green zones, which means you can't build there, and basically the state takes it over turns it into a forest, the creation of military zones, uh, tactics that are were used originally inside Israel and that were later extended to the areas uh, occupied 1967. So you see the same tactics now used in the West Bank and occupied Arab East Jerusalem as were pioneered inside Israel in the 50s and 60s and that were then reprised in the 1970s and leading to these the Land Day protests of 1976. And can you talk, Rashid, about these uh, more recent settlements and, and why they're such a big deal? Well, they're a big deal because in the 1948 war, the Jewish state, which under partition was supposed to be about 58% of Palestine, expanded to about 78%. So Israel took over most of Palestine during the 48 war. In the 67 war, it took over the rest. And particularly in Jerusalem and the West Bank, the same kind of tactics of land expropriation, settlement of, of uh, Israeli Jews and so forth uh, were applied. You have today in the occupied West Bank over half a million Israeli Jewish settlers. You have in occupied Arab East Jerusalem about 340,000. Israeli settlers against an Arab population of about the same size, a little more. Um, so you're, you're talking about, in, in the course of the 55 years since the occupation in 1967, over 800,000 Israelis settled by the Israeli state on land, some of which was expropriated, some of which was state land, all of which had been available to Palestinians before 1967, and all of which was now ex for the exclusive use of Jewish settlers. Uh, and that's the situation today. Although, Rashid, according to international agreements, aren't these settlements illegal? And and if so, why doesn't that make any difference to the settlers and, and the state of Israel? Well, yes, under international law, in terms of Security Council resolutions, uh, occupying power has no right to do anything of this sort. Israel disputes that these are occupied territories. It says they're quote-unquote disputed territories, a unique legal definition made up by Israel to justify what it does, and, and an explanation not accepted by anybody internationally. And it does so because of a claim to exclusive rights within all of the, what is called by Israelis, the land of Israel. Um, this has actually been embodied in the program of the current government. And that coalition government is very heavily right-leaning, is that correct? Exactly. It's, it's the most, most right-wing extreme government in Israeli history, and that's saying a lot, given that Netanyahu has been prime minister longer than any other Israeli. Now, why do they get away with it? They get away with it because the United States runs interference for them and pr protects them 
uh, in the Security Council, even though the United States voted for these Security Council resolutions yeah. by which this is all illegal, the United States uh, refuses to, en- to do anything to stop it. And in fact, it's with American weapons uh, that this occupation is maintained, and it's with American money um, from 501c3 tax-deductible charities that most of the funding goes to the settlement project. There's an interesting little uh, undergirding of American support, which is the Christian Zionist movement, which is something that I only really learned about in recent years. Is this something that you can help us understand? This is actually an increasingly important element in the structure of support for the most extreme things that Israel does. Because by a peculiar reading uh, of the Bible, which is a very new understanding of it, starts in the 19th century and it spreads among evangelical Protestants, the return of the Jews to the land of Israel is necessary for the coming of the Messiah and the apocalypse. And for this apocalyptic worldview, which is particularly well-rooted among, as I say, evangelical Protestants, support for Israel is a religious necessity. And it just so happens that there's a very powerful concentration of evangelicals in some of the southern states of the United States, where they have a lot of influence in politics. And so when one looks in particular at the Republican Party in the United States, one finds support for Israel in communities where there may not be a large Jewish population. In other words, it's not coming from the traditional source of support for Israel in the United States uh, Jewish community. It's coming rather from evangelical Christians. Yeah, they don't care about Jewish people at all. They just care about getting their ducks in a row, the the puzzle pieces in place, so that they can be sitting pretty when the end of the world is nigh. Right. And, And in fact, when the apocalypse comes, the Jews who don't convert to Christianity will be burned in hell in their apocalyptic vision. Um, no, they don't care about Jewish people, except instrumentally, exactly. uh, to get them to the coming of the Messiah and the apocalypse, when only only the, the, the true Christians will be saved. Casey, so many of the topics and the stories that we've covered in the course of this podcast come back to the Cold War. So I'm wondering, Rashid, we've talked about the support in America for the state of Israel and for Jewish people in Palestine. Does this story divide neatly in Cold War terms in this period in the mid-70s? Is there Soviet support for Palestinians? How does this play out? Yeah, no, the Cold War actually is quite important in a number of respects. Uh, the Cold War is a, is a critical factor in both American and Soviet support uh, for the establishment of Israel. Both the United States and the Soviet Union vote for the partition resolution as part of their early Cold War competition. We're talking about 1947, the very beginnings of the Cold War. And both are vying to uh, supplant Britain as a great power in the Middle East. Both are eager to see Israel as an ally. Both are opposed to conservative Arab regimes that are aligned with Britain. And so they both vote for partition, which gave most of Palestine to the Jewish minority. The same thing happens again in 1956. They align on the same side out of Cold War rivalry. The Soviets supporting Egypt against an Anglo-French-Israeli attack in in, in October of 1956, and the United States opposing Britain, France, and Israel for for different reasons, but also with the Cold War rivalry as as a background to it. After that, things in the Middle East tend to align themselves along Cold War lines. In other words, the Arab states tend to line up with the Soviet Union, Israel and other countries line up with the United States. 
And the Cold War becomes an enormously important driver of things, really from the mid-60s onwards, with American support for Israel growing, especially in the late 60s and the early 70s, and Soviet support for the Arab countries uh, expanding. The Soviets begin to get behind the PLO and the Palestinians a little bit later, uh, when, this, when the PLO comes around to the idea of a two-state solution, because the Soviet Union always supported the existence of Israel. And the PLO's opposition to that in the early years distanced the Soviets from the Palestinians. But when the Palestinians begin to come around to the idea of a two-state solution, the Soviet Union begins to back them. And it continues to do that right up through the 80s, till really the end of the Cold War. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon. It was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savor the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm interested in what seems to me, Rashid, the Arab world's 
I don't know, almost disconnection to Palestine. It seems like their support is a bit flaccid, whereas I guess me in in my ignorance would just feel like, oh, Arabs will support other Arabs because, you know, it's a brotherhood. Why is it that the Palestinians almost seem like a, a forgotten people? Well, I, I, I think your, your impression is, is right in many in many respects. There always was Arab support for the Palestinians. You can see this as early as you know, pre-World War I period when I found hundreds of articles in Arab papers talking about Zionism. And that continues in the 20s and the 30s. The British changed policy in 1939 and begin to limit their support for Zionism because they're afraid of Arab public opinion, which is strongly in support of the Palestinians. The problem is Arab governments don't always represent that sentiment. And I think that's true to this day. So when you say Arabs or the Arabs, you're not necessarily talking about Arab public opinion or the Arab peoples. Um, There are opinion polls, annual opinion polls done by a research institute in Qatar, which show that Arab popular support for the Palestinians is as high as it ever was. 80, 90 percent are against normalization with Israel until Israel changes its policy on the Palestinians or see Israel as a threat. That's public opinion. That's the Arabs. Then you have the governments. Do the governments represent their peoples? No. This is a black hole globally as far as democracy is concerned, the Arab world. You have very few democratic governments. In other words, you don't have governments that represent what Arabs think. You have governments that represent what grasping, kleptocratic, dictatorial elites from Morocco all the way to the Gulf. And so, yes, the Arab governments absolutely fit the model that you talked about. But I I don't think that's actually true of public opinion. So flaccid is a very good description of Arab, official Arab support for the Palestinians. Does Land Day, Rashid, become an important day after 1976 in the Palestinian national mood, in, in the construction of a Palestinian national identity? It changes the sense of identity, I think, of Palestinians inside Israel. It gives them a sense that we've been cut off from the rest of our people. We're yet subject to the same kinds of things that all of them have been subject to. And it changes the political mood among Palestinians inside Israel. I think you can trace all kinds of things to land day inside, in terms of Palestinians inside. We're 20% of the Israeli population. We're talking about millions of people today. Essentially, they're forgotten in the way in which Israel is run. But I think the second thing that land day did was to remind Palestinians outside of Palestine that Palestinians inside Israel, Palestinians who were citizens of the state of Israel, were just like them. I think it it, it brought Palestinians closer together. And in that sense, I think it did have an effect on Palestinian national consciousness. This is such a naive question, but you're the person to put me in the picture. What is holding Palestine back from establishing a sovereign state? Is it internal chaos? Is it just the fact that Israel is just so big and powerful? Is it the will of the United States or other factors? I I think you've listed the three factors. Palestinian national movement is divided. Factions that dominated are politically bankrupt. They have no ideas, whether we're talking about the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah or whether we're talking about Hamas in Gaza, the two fractions of the Palestinian national movement or others. Israel is overwhelmingly powerful. It's a nuclear superpower, regional nuclear superpower. Israel's bombed eight Arab capitals over the past several decades. It terrifies its neighbors. It, It applies overwhelming force without restraint wherever it wants in the territories it's occupied. So to establish a Palestinian state would require either a change in Israel or an agreement with Israel. 
which would be dependent on a change in Israel. Israel, is, under its current leadership, is dead set against this. And finally, you have the United States, which is the superpower that endorses, finances, and supports everything Israel does, in spite of its occasional poo-pooing of this or that. All of the things that you mentioned are reasons why you, you're not going to have a Palestinian state, certainly not in the foreseeable future. As we, rec- we are recording this podcast, we're coming up to the 30th anniversary of the Oslo Accords. I'm wondering, Rashid, how much of a political will is there on either side for a peaceful solution at this point? You know, I, I think that both, both peoples would undoubtedly prefer peace. But the question is, on what terms would Palestinians assent to a so-called peace, which crystallizes the status quo? where Israelis make all decisions that are important and there's garbage collection and municipal control. And Israeli police can come in or Israeli troops can come in and kill and shoot and arrest wherever they please. That's the current situation. Do Israelis want peace? Yes, they do. But are they willing to give up the idea of Jewish supremacy, which is actually the name of a party, the Jewish Supremacy Party, one of the parties in the current coalition? Are they willing to give up security control and occupation over Palestinians? I, I don't think that, that, that that's the case. And as far as Palestinians are concerned, I'm sure they would want peace. But do they want it on any terms? No. Uh, Israeli leaders, some Israeli leaders have become very explicit in saying, look, you've lost. Just accept the terms that you're offered and stop fighting. Some Palestinians might be willing to accept that. I don't think most of them right now are. And the fact that resistance continues, whether in the form of protest, whether in the form of a boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, Uh, or whether in the form of armed resistance is evidence that at least many or some Palestinians are just not willing to accept capitulation and submission. So those two factions or those two sides are at loggerheads. I wonder if there is another element, like if there would be perhaps an outside influencer or country that could prevail upon them, either militarily just because they have their own uh, colonization interest or political interest? Like, is there anything like that on the horizon, do you think, Rashid? You'd have to have a change, either in American policy or in the global balance of power. And I don't really see either of those on the horizon in the, in the short term. You know, maybe one day India and China, Europe, Brazil, who knows, will become more important and will put their thumb on the scale. But right now, the, the big thumb on the scale is the American thumb, and that favors, obviously, Israel. So, no, I don't see that. I, I, see, I see possible changes. The Palestinians getting their act together, ending the divisions, ending the corruption, and, and, and coming up with a clear strategy for liberation, which I don't think they have right now. They had a strategy back in the 70s and 80s, flawed as it certainly was. They don't seem to me to have a unified strategy today. You could have democratic change in the Arab world, where the governments of the Arab countries represent their peoples. So I can see things happening but uh, I don't see them happening necessarily very quickly. And when was the last time that you were in Palestine? I, I mean, I, I go every couple of years. I haven't gone because of the pandemic most recently. Um, last three years have been a black hole as far as that's concerned. Do you have family there? Oh, yes. My brother lives there. I have many, 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 I have many, many relatives there. Like most Palestinian families, I have relatives everywhere. I have relatives in Beirut. I have relatives in Amman. I have relatives everywhere. I first started going regularly back in the 1980s, and I lived in Jerusalem for a while. At the time, you know, settlements were little dots on the landscape. By the last time I got there, settlements and Israeli control had been very firmly established, partly thanks to the Oslo Accords, actually, and the metastasization of the settlement uh, project. Israel has controlled most of the West Bank and most of East Jerusalem, and that really wasn't entirely the case back in the 1980s. 
Um, I haven't been in, as I say, more than four years. My sense is it's it, that 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 has that has even increased since then. And do you sense this must be grinding down the morale of the people who live there and your family members who live there? Well, you know, people adjust. I, I, we lived in Beirut uh, for over 10 years of the Civil War, um, from the early 70s right up until 1983. You would think that nobody could live in such conditions. We, we lived in those conditions. We had, we had three kids in those conditions. We, you know, I taught at the American University of Beirut in those conditions. People adjust to extreme trauma and violence and oppression and so forth. They have to live. And that's what people do. Um, when my daughter was living there for a while, and I would come up, we would come up on a checkpoint or something, and I'd say, how do you, how do, you deal with this? And she said, she would say in Arabic, adi, adi. it's normal, it's normal, it's usual. You just, there are ways people cope, and th that's what they're doing. It doesn't mean it's not stressful or traumatic, but they have to adjust. We've referenced the Cold War several times, Katie, and the end came very quickly. And ultimately, mm -hmm. it was an economic process more than a political or military thing. Do you see any similar unforeseen events happening in the, with the problems in Palestine that could have a similar effect? Well, you know, I, when, I, when I'm asked a question about the future, I say the job description of a historian doesn't include <laughs> predicting the future. I, I have no idea <laughs> what could or would or might happen. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, global economic uh, conditions could change. Things in the United States might change. I've detected a growing impatience among younger Americans, especially maybe at university levels and, and, and um, in the Jewish community, among minority communities in the United States, growing impatience with the standard line on Israel where Israel's security is sacrosanct and Israel is, is a, you know, the closest possible ally of the United States. And people, at least young people, they see Israel as an oppressor, many young people today. Will that filter up through the political process? I don't know. It certainly has affected college campuses. Uh, when I was a college student many, many, many years ago, there was no debate on campus. Uh, I remember when Golda Meir came to Yale in the late 60s. I mean, overwhelming support for her. And there were four of us demonstrating against her. Against her. Today on college campuses, there's a, there's a robust debate. It sometimes gets ugly, but th there is contestation over this issue in a way there never was before. Rashid Khalidi, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and I really feel like this whole picture has been entirely fleshed out. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. 
Hey, we got an email that I wanted to share with you, oh, Tom. Okay. <laughs> This is from James Thompson, who says, Following the recent Ho Chi Minh episode, I wanted to tell you about my early experiences of the name Ho Chi Minh. Like many kids in the UK, I grew up with my parents saying little phrases like, Chin up, Charlie. One that was particular to my house was when I was being given something for the rubbish bin or when I was being directed to put something in the bin. And I was always told, In the bin with Ho Chi Men. <laughs> I had no idea that this was a historical character or anything more than a quirky, rhyming phrase. The first time I knew there was something more was when I watched the film Platoon, where Charlie Sheen's character shouts, Ho Chi Men sucks! I asked my mom why the character was using our bin phrase, <laughs> and that's when I discovered that Ho Chi Men was a real person and that our phrase was actually a quote from Lyndon Johnson. Apparently, the White House had come out with a slogan, All the way with LBJ. And when challenged on the lameness of said slogan, President Johnson allegedly said, What would you prefer? In the bin with Ho Chi Minh? <laughs> And in one statement, all Thompson family waste disposal directions was born. I wonder if anyone else ever used that phrase. Oh, James, that is a great email. Thank you for getting in touch. <laughs> If you would like to get in touch with a story similar to James's or maybe a guest idea, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk. On social media, we are at Spread That Fire on both Instagram and Twitter. While I'm mentioning it, make sure you check out our extraordinarily nice merch collection merch. at spreadthatfire.com. Next episode is Terror on the Airline. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. 
Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.